How do we become forgiving people? What's the relationship between God's forgiveness of us and the way we should treat others? Can forgiveness happen when there's no repentance? And what's the relationship between forgiveness and justice? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Anthony Bash. Anthony is a professor of theology at Durham University, as well as vice master of Hatfield College. His research in recent years has included an exploration of forgiveness and reconciliation. So our question today is, how is Christian forgiveness good news today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Anthony Bash, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much indeed. I'm very glad to be here today. Thank you for asking me. Anthony, tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all. What roles do you have in Durham University, both in terms of college and departments? Thank you. Well, I'm an honorary professor in the Department of Theology. Um, I'm not paid for that, and my paid job is to be Vice Master and Senior Tutor at one of the Durham Colleges, Hatfield College, and I'm also uh, the Chaplain of the College. So I wear lots of different hats and sometimes get confused as to which hat to wear at which time. You're wearing the Professor of Theology hat today because... Thank you for reminding me. (laughs) Over the years, you've written a number of both articles and books about the question of forgiveness, reconciliation, and looking at it from the perspective of Christian faith uh, and spirituality. What, What was it that first ignited your interest in that area in particular? Really two things. About... 45 years ago, I had a friend who apologised to some other people, but they wouldn't accept his apology. And he was a Christian, and he really struggled with knowing how to deal with that. And that's always been at the back of my mind. But more recently, uh, my wife and I, my wife is a psychologist, uh, my wife and I were asked to write a joint chapter in a book Um, exploring the interrelationship of theology and psychology. My wife's a psychologist and she was approached and we decided we'd write a joint chapter. At the end of writing the chapter, I realised there was a lot about forgiveness in the Old Testament and in the New, which I didn't understand and I wanted to do more work. And so that's led to a 15, 16 year journey that I'm still on and still struggling to put all the bits together in the Bible and struggling to understand what forgiveness means for 21st century people, which isn't always the same as what's in the Bible. Well, let's start with the Bible then. What are the aspects of forgiveness in the Old and New Testament that you think are significant, interesting, distinctive, and why? Well, first of all, I would say that in the Old Testament, there is virtually nothing on interpersonal forgiveness. There's a great deal about forgiveness between human beings and God, but virtually nothing on what I call interpersonal forgiveness, forgiveness between individuals. But when you come to the New Testament, um, there is a great deal about interpersonal forgiveness, and there's been a huge intellectual, social, spiritual, and cultural shift And I would say 
reading the New Testament as a whole, that uh, interpersonal forgiveness needs to be preceded by what I call the three R's. The three R's are these. Um, remorse, which is deep regret for doing wrong. Repentance, which is um, a commitment to do better in the future and to change one's life because of the wrong one has done. And then thirdly, restitution, the commitment to put right uh, the wrong that one has done, so to make repayment if needs be, to return stolen property, to do some forms of service as repayment, or something like that. So it needs to be remorse, repentance, and restitution. You did come back to that in a moment, but let's, can I pick you up on that sure, first thing sure, you mentioned yeah. in terms of the fact that there's no interpersonal forgiveness in the Old Testament? And, but then we find a new culture in the New Testament. Yes, yes. What, what are the reasons, you think, for that absence when there is lots of language of divine forgiveness? That is a hugely difficult question, and I don't really know the answer, so I'll be quite truthful. Um, I think that the place that God had in the life of the community and of the life individual and the life of an individual was was paramount. And um, there was a very strong sense that to wrong God was to sin. And it was regarded as so utterly abhorrent to sin that I don't think people then thought, oh dear, there are also interpersonal consequences. And the culture of the time was simply that if you put right with God what you had done wrong then that more or less righted all that there needed to be. And I think it's, it's been uh, later on with, with, with much more uh, a consciousness of individuals and individual needs and hurts that the idea of interpersonal forgiveness developed. But what I should say is that the grounding of interpersonal forgiveness in the New Testament is very much what is in the Old Testament. Uh, and Jesus bases uh, what he says about interpersonal forgiveness on the fact that we should not only love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind, but also that we should love our neighbour as ourselves. And we think of that as being something Jesus said, but in fact it's from Leviticus. And I think, if I can put it this way, the genius of Jesus is to reread. Leviticus with new eyes and to understand that individuals have a place when it comes to forgiveness as well as obviously God. So if I've heard you right Anthony you're saying that within an Old Testament framework it was the significance of the relationship with God that dominated and shaped the worldview so that it was the forgiveness between God and his people that was really significant and what was new with Jesus the way that that significance of relationship was not in any way diminished but rather it was enhanced enhanced that's enhanced the word yeah through an understanding yeah. That, yeah. that it had implications for how if we were forgiven by god we might engage with forgiveness with other people as well yes i think that's exactly right and i think um if you think of um uh, what jesus said that uh, as you do it to the least of one of these so you do it to me and i think 
what he's saying to us is the way you treat people and the way you mistreat people is actually a reflection of how you think about and treat God. And once you see it like that, it it suddenly becomes, a, I think, theologically, a very exciting way of thinking. So, so if I'm rude to you, I'm not just rude to you, I'm rude to God. But I need to put it right not only with God, but also with you. And that's the the new step that Jesus made. And that would explain the language of a cycle of forgiveness in, for example, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we Mm -hmm. forgive those who sin against us. Also in Colossians, Mm -hmm. forgive as the Lord forgave you. And it's interesting that in both the teaching of Jesus and Paul, you have this similar dimension you have the the vertical forgiveness if you like and the the horizontal forgiveness that those i mean that's absolutely right it it's it's a mutually inductive process that they each feed the other so as as god forgives us so we become forgiving people as we forgive people we we are sensitized to our own need for divine forgiveness and i think opened to it so so they feed each other, they teach each other, they inform each other, and you can't have one without the other. So asking a chicken and egg question really isn't relevant, really. It, it's it missing is, the point. It is completely irrelevant. Um, and many people get hung up with the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins or trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. And so some sometimes people think, oh, I have to f- forgive john or fred or jane or ethel or whatever because if i don't god won't forgive me but i think that's a misreading of the lord's prayer i think what the lord's prayer is saying is as we have experienced god's forgiveness for ourselves so we become forgiving people and we can as it were offer to god our forgiveness of other people as an indicator to god that we have received his forgiveness in the way God intends us to receive it. You, you mentioned that the three R's of, of yes. forgiveness in the yes. New Testament, remorse, repentance, and restitution. Are there any kind of narratives that you would go to with the New Testament that I might put flesh on the bones, perhaps demonstrating one or two or all three? Oh, what a lovely question. Um, well, I think the story of um, Zacchaeus is a lovely illustration. Here was a man who just about broken every law there was, I think, really. And he had an encounter with Jesus. It changed his life. He was clearly remorseful about what he'd done. He repented. He, was, he wasn't going to exploit people again. And he made lavish restitution. He um, agreed to not, not only restore what he'd taken wrongly, but to restore more than he'd taken wrongly. And you haven't asked this question, but I'm going to go on to it because I really want to say this. I think the story in uh, the parable in Matthew 18 of the unjust steward is absolutely key to understanding forgiveness. Just remind us. Yes, I will. A man was forgiven an outlandishly lavish sum. I mean, it's ridiculous. And Jesus's hearers would have been rolling in the aisles listening to how much money this man had been forgiven. The man then goes away and thinks, oh, jolly good. And he sees his pal who owes him the equivalent of six months wages, which in contrast was was a p- 
piffling, trifling sum. But the man, forgiven so much, turns round to his friend and says, you've got to repay me every penny, and until you do, uh, you'll be in prison. Now, the man who forgave the slave the enormous sum got to hear of this, and he withdrew the debt forgiveness he'd given. And the question is, why did he do that? And I think he did it because the greedy man, the man forgiven the enormous sum, didn't receive the forgiveness in the way and in the spirit that it was given as a wonderful uh, gift of grace. Rather, he received the forgiveness as a get-out-of-jail-free card. He thought, great, I'm free. I can go on being just the way I was before, and now I'm free of debt. And that was evidenced in the way he treated his friend. And it seems to me that if we receive God's forgiveness or another human being's forgiveness, that experience of forgiveness should be transformative and that it should affect the way we practice living after that. Uh, I suppose I could, I could summarise it as forgiven people should become forgiving people. And that is how I think we should uh, experience and practice forgiveness if we're going to do it the New Testament way. You've hinted at this already and you've just landed in that place where you've, we've begun to think about what does this look like for mm -hmm. us. You've presented us with a, a compelling and clear model about what forgiveness in, in the ministry and teaching of the New Testament looks like. Let's ask a general question first of all. How is that distinctive, countercultural, significant in, in contemporary culture, that worldview of forgiveness, of remorse, repentance, restitution? How long do we have a day <laughs> to answer these questions? Um, thank you for the question. Uh, I, I think there is a drive in modern culture to promote what I call unilateral forgiveness. People read the New Testament or half remember it or half understand <laughs> it as providing a model of unilateral forgiveness being virtuous and good. And they often... By which you mean unilateral forgiveness? Uh, forgiveness where the, wrong, uh, the, the wrongdoer doesn't say sorry. So if I punch you on the nose, not that I would, I assure you, Philip, but if That's I did... It's almost as if there's a moral obligation on you to forgive me, even though I'm not sorry. And people quote what Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They quote those words as justification for this model of unilateral forgiveness. If you think carefully about Jesus' words, they're not, in fact, a statement of forgiveness at all but a prayer to God that God would forgive the people who were crucifying Jesus, an innocent man. And what Jesus was doing was practising his own teaching to love his enemies and to pray for them. And there's no ground for saying that he modelled unconditional or unilateral forgiveness. But I think in the popular mind, this misreading of Jesus has really taken hold and many people think that to forgive without the wrongdoer acknowledging wrongdoing and 
being remorseful, being repentant and offering restitution. They think that's a good thing and I think they're mistaken. And I think they're mistaken because the wrongdoer never learns from his or her wrongdoing, never has the opportunity to put it right and never has the opportunity to see the hurt and damage which the wrongdoing has done. And there is as all sorts of people who are writing about unilateral forgiveness. Um, there's a whole stream in modern psychology called forgiveness interventions, um, which is a form of CBT therapy, encouraging and purportedly enabling people to forgive unilaterally. And sometimes there is a need for it. So if the wrongdoer is dead, if the wrongdoer um, is unavailable, you may have to do something akin to forgiveness. But what I would say is, on the whole, if you can speak to the wrongdoer, hard and difficult though it may be, it is almost always better because the wrongdoer thereby learns. And if the wrongdoer then slams the door in your face, then you may need to love your enemy, you may need to pray for your enemy, but I suggest you don't need to forgive your enemy. And and I should add, I think I'm on a limb here. Some of your listeners won't agree with me saying this, but I think I can defend it biblically. And so therefore, that would suggest that we should be engaging in dialogue. Yes, definitely. Rather than imagining that we could engage in forgiveness as a solitary activity. I, I think you said something terribly important, that... The courage to speak and the courage to listen is a great underestimated virtue. I've also learnt over the years, both through my own experience and what I've read, that wrong is sometimes not only on one side, that both wrongdoer and victim can change titles in relation to any given uh, event. And I've learned, I'm not breaking any confidences here, but in terms of family dynamics, I think, oh, I've been wronged. But as I talk to my wife or my children, sometimes I learn, well, actually, I bear a measure of responsibility for the relational disruption that's occurred. And though I feel the victim... There's also a place for me to say sorry and apologise and to put things right. So so we, we, we need listening ears to learn. And does our ongoing sensitivity to our need for forgiveness from God help us in that process in the sense that it, it highlights the fact that while I may be a victim, I'm always, always someone needing need of forgiveness myself before our... I, I, again, I think that's a wonderful point to make that... And I, th I think this is something I've just learned over the years that, well, the, the, there's a verse in the New Testament uh, where where a man pray, prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And I think even in relation to the people who have done me wrong, I'm acutely aware of my own need as a sinner for ongoing forgiveness. And that, that has to be the bedrock of our relationships that we we know we're sinners, we know we're failures, we know we're going to make mistakes with one another and actually we shouldn't be surprised if people tell us that we've done wrong and we need to put things right. 
In your book, Forgiveness, a Theology, you talk about the elephant in the room, which is justice. Yes. And you've hinted at that already. But I wonder if I can ask you about what is called restorative justice. That is to say, just... Which Sorry, I think it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, which is based around dialogue. Do you yeah. just explore what that is and how that might help us think about forgiveness and justice together? That's a very good question and a very lengthy question to answer, so I'll, I'll deal with it briefly. But in my view, restorative justice is a wonderful secular mechanism, not using the for- forgiveness word, to encourage people to talk about the wrong that's been done, the impact it's had on them, and for even the victim to listen to the wrongdoer's story to understand maybe how the wrongdoer got to where he or she was and therefore why the wrongdoer did what he or she did. And... By all accounts, this sort of pattern of listening and dialogue can be a hugely healing experience and transformative experience for both sides. Forgiveness isn't integral to restorative justice, but it's often what results. And it's worth adding here that particularly for people from non-Christian faith traditions or people who would say they're not in a faith tradition, the word forgiveness can often be a Christian-charged word and they're looking for something different that doesn't, that's not described with the word forgiveness or by the word forgiveness, but in fact has the elements of forgiveness. And it seems to me that remorse, repentance, restitution, listening and learning are all deeply Christian virtues constitutive of remorse and you can still practice those virtues without calling it forgiveness and if people do that three cheers is all I can say. Is there still though the concern that and I think this comes back to your point earlier about unilateral forgiveness that if unilateral forgiveness becomes our controlling metaphor or discourse, that runs the risk that justice is not taken seriously. I'm thinking of the situation in an American courtroom recently where uh, a man whose brother had been murdered embraced his I read the story, brother's yes. murderer, yes, uh, a I woman who yeah. just... It was ex- and And... And, and that's held up as a as a model. Now, in that case, I think there had been an element of remorse. But, you know, I think what you're saying is that forgiveness doesn't sort of isn't a cheap and easy way of avoiding the justice. And of course, in that situation, she went on to be imprisoned. You, you are, you're very good at asking very difficult questions and very demanding questions. I, I think we're faced with a paradox. Forgiveness in the context of the three R's, is intention with a sense of justice. And you can't square the circle. You just can't square it. The nearest way I can think of it is if somebody is repentant, that's what you want the outcome of justice to be. That's why we have uh, judicially imposed penalties, so that somebody 
uh, learns to be sorry for what they've done. If you have restitution, you also have not quite what judicial punishment's about, because uh, judicial punishment is punishment. But you can have something that's, I think, better than punishment, something that's puts right the wrong that's been done. So authentic biblical forgiveness goes a long way to meeting the needs of justice, I think. Not quite in exactly the same way, and I'm not going to say that to forgive in the biblical way is just, because the victim always loses something and gives away something and releases something. But they get back riches that amply compensate for what may be also seen as a lack of justice. So it's compensatory. Mm. But it's a very hard question and the most painful question of the lot when it Mm. comes to forgiveness. But it's helpful to see forgiveness and justice not as either or, but actually there's overlap. There's a considerable overlap. And I think I would want to say that authentic forgiveness is better, in my view, than any form of state-delivered justice. But that's just my view. When we discuss forgiveness, we often, I notice, can move ourselves where we are the victim needing to forgive. What about the situation of remembering when we are the person who is asking or needing forgiveness? Yes, and this brings me back to my friend's problem that I mentioned right at the beginning. It's another very difficult question because there are people who are genuinely repentant and sorry and who are never forgiven. And they live with a significant degree of hurt. And this is where the notion of self-forgiveness comes in. In modern thinking, there's, I think, an unhealthy push towards self-forgiveness. Unhealthy because the wrongdoer is not encouraged to be repentant, remorseful or make restitution. And I think that's always the priority. But in cases where there is no uh, willingness for the victim to forgive a repentant wrongdoer, I think the wrongdoer has to say, I've done my best, I've tried my hardest, I've put right what I can. I've gone not only the extra mile, but the extra, extra mile and got nowhere. And so we have to say, I'm not going to be shackled by this sense of guilt and wrongdoing any longer. I'm going to move on. And I think there is a place for that. And I think that's where professional psychologists can sometimes really help us because we can be trapped in a cycle of uh, guilt, a cycle of shame, a cycle of despair. And sometimes we do need professional people with skills that you and I maybe don't have to help us move on. You've painted a compelling picture of both the coherence of a biblical understanding of forgiveness within the New Testament context and also the way in which that is speaks prophetically into a contemporary culture of unilateral forgiveness. Can I sort of ask you how this journey feels for you 15 years on from having started it and and what are the points where (laughs) it 
still touches you yeah. and speaks to you. I'm going to give you some very honest answers now. Um, I have wept a lot in these 15 years as I've read about the hurt that people have carried. I have read um, a book called um, The Railway Man by Eric Lomax that profoundly moved me. I've read Simon Wiesenthal's book, The Sunflower, and it gave me sleepless nights. And I, I think I've been very privileged to be allowed vicariously to understand and secondhand to experience something of the hurt and pain and trauma that people feel. And I think it's softened me, it's sensitised me. I've, I've sobbed. I, I can't pretend otherwise. I am deeply committed to being a forgiving person. I'm deeply f committed to the three R's. And I'm deeply committed to teaching and preaching on these things because I believe that without them there is no future. I'm, 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 t I'm taking here the, the words of Archbishop Desmond Tutu who wrote a very influential book called No Future Without Forgiveness. Uh, I respectfully differ in some respects from Archbishop Tutu who I think in the situation of South Africa uh, wanted to celebrate unilateral forgiveness but he is right. There is no future without forgiveness. There's only bitterness, vengeance, hatred, destruction and feuds. Anthony Bash, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. It's been a privilege. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.